This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful for all that you have given us and provided for us, for the instruction that you have given us in your word, the guidance that the Holy Spirit provides for us as we continue to study uh, your word, that we may uh, internalize your word, assimilate it into our thinking, that it becomes one with us, that we may learn more about you and that we may grow closer to you and that our thoughts will reflect your thoughts, your plan, and your revelation. Father, we pray that as we study this morning that, that your word would be made real to us by God the Holy Spirit and that we may under, come to understand the principles that we study and how they apply to each of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Luke chapter 2. We're continuing our study on the life of Christ, and primarily we're looking at the life of Christ through the lens of the Gospel of Matthew. However, there are certain times and certain uh, passages that are and events in the life of Christ that are included in the Gospel of Luke or John or Matthew, I mean, or Mark, that I will go to to give us a little more insight at times. That doesn't mean I'll cover all of the elements that are covered in the other Gospels that Matthew leaves out, but uh, for at least during this opening period and probably a couple of other times, and uh, of course when we come to the conclusion to the, at the passages related to the death, burial, resurrection of our Lord, there's much that can be added by comparing Scripture to the other uh, passages. And one, the one we're looking at today and have been looking at uh, the last couple of weeks relates to the childhood, the infancy and childhood of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an area of the Lord's life that people are often curious about. Every now and then you'll see something on television, or you might see some book written about the missing years in the life of Jesus or things of that nature. So it's uh, certainly become an, an arena of uh, unjustified speculation, but one that is nevertheless um, true for all of us. We're curious, what must it have been like to have a child that was sinless? Now, I think some of you as parents probably think you have a sinless child. Some of you dreamed of having one every day, but uh, that just varies from experience to experience. But what must that have been like to have a child that's sinless? But what must it have been like to be a sinless child and have sinful parents? 
What must it have been like to raise a child that was brilliant in his humanity? We're not talking about just the deity of Christ here. Remember, that is, um, that's not the issue. The focus here is on the humanity of Jesus. And that's one reason I wanted to look at this passage in Luke, because it does give us an important glimpse into the human development of the Lord Jesus. In fact, it's our only real glimpse outside of a couple of uh, statements in Hebrews that um, that just give us a broad sweep. This is the only passage that gives us any kind of an idea of what was going on during the life of Jesus. We might also wonder what kind of parental training was necessary in the home of Mary and Joseph with a child like Jesus. Uh, he is he is uh, sinless, but nevertheless, he still needed to be taught. In his humanity, he needed to learn. He needed to be disciplined, not maybe not in the negative sense of punishment for disobedience, but in the positive sense of learning uh, to be disciplined, learning to submit to authority, uh, learning to follow the direction of his parents. This was certainly part of his of his spiritual growth. Another question we might ask, one that's often occurred to me, is what must it have been like to have been one of Jesus' siblings? I'm an only child, so I'm not real sure about uh, what goes on with uh, brothers and sisters, but I've observed a lot of this, and I've certainly observed uh, behavior in families where parents are prone to say or tempted to say, why can't you be like your brother? Why can't you be like your sister? How difficult must it have been to have been one of Jesus' younger siblings and your older brother is perfect? Every day he said, why can't you be like Jesus? Of course, they couldn't. It would be impossible because they were, they were sinless. We might also wonder what it must have been like to be like, be the omnipotent, omniscient, fully uh, righteous and holy second person of the Trinity to enter into human history as a baby and then to go through that growth process where you're having to learn in his humanity, you're having to grow, you're having to acquire knowledge, and you're having to live with sinful parents and sinful siblings. We all know that there are times when we have been perfectly innocent, not the times that you wish you had been but weren't, but the times when we were innocent, our parents were just in a bad mood. They had a bad day. They were upset, and they lashed out at us. They got impatient with us. They uh, yelled at us or something, and it wasn't really our fault, and we hadn't done anything wrong. It was just we were the object of that. So Jesus would probably have experienced that as well because both Mary and Joseph had sin natures and were sinful, and it's very difficult for sinful creatures to relate to a sinless person. So this would have been difficult, and this was part of his growth process. Often we have uh, misguided assumptions about Jesus because we really don't understand the interplay between his uh, deity and his humanity. On the one hand, we know that Jesus is fully God, he's undiminished deity, and that was joined with true humanity, yet without sin. Uh, even when he was an infant in the manger, the eternal second person of the Trinity was still holding the universe uh, together. We have passages like uh, 
Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him or by him all things consist. So this is his ongoing uh, role and function within the Godhead that he is holding the universe together. He is sustaining uh, the universe. And so this is going on throughout his, his, uh, in the period of his incarnation, uh, in terms of his deity, not in terms of his humanity. The second person of the Trinity never relinquished, never gave up his divine attributes. That is a misconception and an erroneous teaching that comes out of a misunderstanding of a key passage that we'll come back to later, Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Philippians 2, 5 through 7 begins with a command. Whenever we think about the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his humanity and deity, a passage that ought to come to our minds is this passage in Philippians chapter 2. And this shows us something that we often miss, and that is in terms of the person of our, our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the details of the hypostatic union, which is a term to describe the unity of the two uh, natures in Christ, his deity and his humanity, that that is an extremely abstract doctrine and difficult for us to grasp. Yet the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 uses that to teach a principle of application for every one of us, which is the principle of humility. And so the the opening here is crucial. He begins with a command to have this attitude toward one another that Jesus had. So it is something that is expected, and it's expected because we can do it. And uh, that's the difficult part. We can't do it on our own. We can only do it by means of God the Holy Spirit. The command there to have this attitude is from the verb phreneo, which means to think or to reason or to have a certain mental attitude or mindset. So Paul is saying have this mindset. This is to be a mental attitude that characterizes our whole life, and this is, was uh, demonstrated uh, through Jesus Christ, and that it's demonstrated through what is called the kenosis based upon the use of the verb here for emptied himself. This is how it's usually translated. I'm using an English, the, the English translation I'm using in this slide is from the um, uh, ESV, the English Standard Version, which is a relatively new translation, but I liked aspects of it better than I did others. The, the strict literal meaning of kanao, the verb here, means to empty something. It also is related to vanity or to not using something to render something ineffective or inoperable uh, to uh, make something of no significance or relevance. And that's the idea here is that what Je- Jesus isn't, uh, the second person of the Trinity isn't dumping his deity. He's not, he's not uh, minimizing are, are removing any aspect of his deity. Many times in, during the period of the incarnation, the Lord 
accessed his deity for specific purposes to demonstrate he was fully God. For example, when he changed the water into wine, he doesn't do that in his humanity. He does that because he is fully God. But he is not accessing his divine attributes in order to solve uh, personal problems, in order to handle challenges in his humanity. He's, he only accesses his deity in order to demonstrate and validate the claim that he is uh, the Son of God. And so emptying himself... It should be understood in that sense. He's willingly or voluntarily restricting or limiting the use of his divine attributes for the purpose of the plan of God during the incarnation. And the next phrase helps us to understand how he does that. It's, it's by taking on the form of a servant. So in one sense, there's this limitation, but the limitation takes place by means of adding humanity to his to his deity. And that's going to restrict his use of his divine attributes. And so it's important to understand uh, this distinction, especially when we're looking at the passage we're, we're in this morning in Luke chapter 2, with his... Uh, with the uh, in describing his growth, his development as a as a child, and into his adolescent years, so Philippians two seven tells us that he emptied himself by taking on the form. This would be the ex, a, 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 the the nature of a servant. He came to as a servant to seek and to save that which was lost. And he was born in the likeness of men. The word for likeness here describes his physical uh, human uh, body. So he is born as a man. That's emphasizing his true humanity. Verse 8 says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Now that's the key phrase I want us to hone in on here because that's what we're going to go back and focus on in Luke 2. How did he humble himself? By being obedient. That's what humility is. Humility is proper orientation to authority, submission to authority. Humility is not an attitude of just letting somebody kind of walk all over you. Humility is not this idea of pseudo-humility we often have where one denigrates oneself, acts like they have a low self-image or something of that nature. But it is the idea of recognizing authority. Numbers tells us that the most humble man in the Bible is Moses, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. It's Moses. Moses was the most humble man. Uh, Old King James said the meekest, but the idea is humility. But Moses was an extremely strong leader. If you read through the Torah and you read and study the life of Moses, he's a very strong individual. He's a very assertive individual, and he understands who he is, but he is submitted to the authority of God to a degree that no one else was. And that is why the Scripture says he was the most humble of men, it's that orientation to authority, and the context of that was a context when uh, his brother and sister were involved in a little uh, rebellion against him, and so the contrast is between their lack of authority orientation and Moses' uh, strict uh, uh, authority orientation. So the Lord Jesus Christ, and now this is talking about his authority orientation in the Godhead. That's something else we don't think about too much, is that there's an authority structure in the Godhead. 
often we think of authority as something that's related to creatures or the relationship of the of creatures to the creator but authority is something that is built into any uh, society and by society i mean any any group of individuals that uh, engage in activities together and those three individuals in the trinity father son and holy spirit are engaged eternally in different activities, and within that Godhead there was an authority structure. And the Father is the prime leader, the Son uh, functions in certain areas, and the Holy Spirit functions in other areas, but all under the authority of the Father. And that tells us, too, that if Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are completely equal to one another, then authority has nothing to do with equality. This is a major misperception today. Uh, the failure to understand this principle has given rise to the entire uh, feminist movement. It's given rise to a complete breakdown within the home between husbands and wives. It's led to a complete breakdown in many other areas of society because it's, it, it goes right to the heart of the issue of authority. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ, as the eternal second person of the Trinity, is equal to the Father, but he is always obedient to the Father. He is submissive to the will of the Father. And then we learn from our passage that we're studying today that he, in his humanity, he is also subject to the authorities that God placed over him. And the authorities that were placed over him in his humanity are sinful authorities. Now, that's something that bears a certain amount of, of, uh, of, of thought. Uh, that we meditate upon and contemplate this idea of what it must have been like for the perfect eternal second person of the Trinity to be placed in a position where he must submit to authorities over him that are sinful, that are wrong, that are operating on their own self-absorbed agenda and not operating on uh, God's plan. And so often we think we justify ourselves for being disobedient to parents or are to husbands or to fathers or to employers or to the government because we don't think they're right. And yet um, in many of these cases, uh, they are still the authority. It's not an absolute wrong that, that is, um, th- that's involved. In other words, they're not telling us to do something that violates the will of God, and we just want to follow our agenda rather than their agenda. So we have to learn what it means to submit to authority. This is at the core of all the issues, as we'll see, in the angelic conflict. And this is critical to our testimony as believers. So the Lord Jesus Christ had to learn, had to learn obedience to authority in his humanity. That doesn't mean, by learning obedience, doesn't mean he was disobedient, but he had to develop in that area as in every other area in life. This reminds me of three key passages in Hebrews. Hebrews 2.10 says, It was fitting for him, that is, God the Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that's the ultimate purpose of God, is to bring us to glory, to make the captain of their salvation, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect. And the word there means complete or mature through suffering. So the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity had to grow to spiritual maturity in the same way that you and I do. 
And he did that by going through various challenges, adversities, and prosperity situations in order to uh, have the opportunity to apply uh, the Word of God, the promises of God, the principles of God's Word to those circumstances and situations, and to demonstrate in his life what Adam did not demonstrate, and that is obedience to authority and obedience to everything that God had commanded. And so Hebrews 2.10 says he had to be made perfect or mature or complete through suffering. A few verses later in Hebrews 2.17 we read, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren. In other words, he is true humanity. He's just like us with one exception, and that is he doesn't have, he's not born with a sin nature. He, but he is perfect as Adam was perfect when Adam was first created. And like Adam, he had volition and could choose to be disobedient. And in his humanity, he has to pass the test of obedience to authority to demonstrate that he, that, that, that God's will is true and perfect and complete. So Hebrews 2.17, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest uh, in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now that idea that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest is expanded in Hebrews 4.15, a couple of chapters later, where the writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Because Jesus has gone through all of the all the categories of testing that we go through, he has it through his humanity an understanding of what we go through. But even though he was tested in every area, he was without sin, whereas whereas we fail. So he grows up. This tells us that from the from his birth up until the time that we really see him uh, exposed in the scriptures at the beginning of his ministry when he's about 30 years of age, he's going through this, this entire growth process in his humanity. In terms of the, the hypostatic union, in terms of the joining of the humanity with the deity of Christ, he is, uh, we have to understand that, that the deity and the humanity of Christ are joined together and united together in one, one person. But in his humanity, Jesus has access, or in a limited way, to his deity. He is not accessing his deity in order to solve the challenges, the problems that he faces in his humanity. In other words, he has to learn to face life in a fallen world, face the suffering, the adversity, the prosperity, whatever the challenges may be on the basis of God's word and the uh, filling of the Holy Spirit, just as you and I do. So he has to grow in his humanity, go through all those steps of growth. He has to learn how to walk. He has to learn how to eat. He has to learn uh, obedience. He has to learn the scriptures. He has to learn a trade. All of these things are part of his humanity. And in doing that, he faces all the different kinds of tests and trials and challenges that you and I face, but he's not reaching over from his humanity and accessing his deity to solve those problems. There's, there's a limited uh, firewall, as it were, between his humanity and his deity so that he's, he only accesses his deity 
on limited occasions and to demonstrate who he is as the God-man. Otherwise, he is facing and handling those circumstances and situations from his humanity the same way that you and I do. He's doing that in order to, A, fulfill the law from the Old Testament, but secondly, in order to establish a new precedent for us for the spiritual life of the church age so that that dispensation of the... um, of the king, the dispensation, I call it the messianic dispensation because it focuses on the offer of the kingdom that, that, uh, and the offer of the Messiah, that in that dispensation it's sort of a hinge and it fulfills Old Testament uh, types and prophecies, but it also sets a new pattern uh, for, the, for us in the future church age. So now let's look at our passage beginning in Luke 2.40. In Luke 2.40 we read, And this is a summary. We get two summary statements here, one at the beginning of this section and one at the end of the section. In Luke 2.40 we read, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now the word for child here is the Greek word paideon, which can refer to a child from infancy, from birth really, all the way up to about the age of of, uh, 13, 14, somewhere in there, when they became an adult, uh, depending on the culture, whether you're Roman culture or Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, you became an adult at your bar mitzvah when you were 13. So this describes that that it can describe any part of that period from his early infancy all the way up, uh, through the time that he would be viewed within the culture as an adult. So the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and that it refers to his acquisition of the word of God and learning to apply it. Uh, he grew and became strong in spirit. The word there for growth is auxano, which indicates a continued growth. It's in an imperfect tense, which is continuous action in the past, and it describes uh, physical growth. It also describes spiritual growth in a few places. Here it is primarily uh, talking about it's talking about both his physical maturation and his uh, spiritual development. It be- and became strong in spirit. Now the problem we have in the New Testament in the Greek is that in in Greek there were no cap capitalization, so the the original doesn't tell us specifically whether this is going to be the human spirit or the Holy Spirit. I believe this is the Holy Spirit, and it's a dative case, and it should be translated with with an uppercase S. He grows and becomes strong by means of the Spirit, and as a result of his growth by means of the Spirit, uh, the word there for growing strong... um, is kratao, which again means just to, 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 it has, has that idea of both strength physically as well as spiritually. So he becomes strong by means of the Spirit, and he's filled, as a result of walking by the Spirit, he's filled with wisdom. Wisdom is the end process of our spiritual growth. We study the Word, the Holy Spirit fills us with the Word, and as we learn to apply it, we develop that skill of wisdom, skillful application is the end result. When we begin to apply the Word of God, it's not always skillful, but that comes as a result of continued application. So 
Uh, He's filled with wisdom. This indicates his spiritual development, and the grace of God is upon him. So he is uh, the recipient of God's grace in all of the uh, all the process of his spiritual life, just as as we are. And then we see the conclusion of this this episode in Luke two fifty two, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. And so we see two different things emphasized at the beginning. Wisdom refers to his spiritual growth. Stature refers to his physical growth. And in favor with God and men relates to, first of all, his relationship to God, and second, his relationship to human beings. And so we see that he grows substantially throughout this period and develops in every area, spiritually, physically, and socially, as well as in terms of his relationship, uh, his relationship to God. Now, as we look at Jesus' life and we look at the fact that he is born uh, as a unique child without a sin nature, he still has to grow up uh, within a human environment. Now, there's a few things that we can know about Jesus or we can extrapolate in the fact that we know that he grows up in a Jewish home uh, that is observant of the law. We know that Mary and Joseph are both uh, believers. They're both regenerate. They are both uh, devout. They're righteous. They're walking with the Lord. And so they're going to um, raise him according to the law where he is going to be given instruction on the, on the uh, Torah, on the Word of God as he, as he grew up. Now, at that time, we know ways in which young Jewish boys were were uh, reared and trained, and they were um, when they were five years of age, they would begin the study of the scriptures in their in the Jewish schools, and then by the age of ten, they would begin studying the rabbinical teachings, uh, what was called the halakha or the oral law, and then at the age of twelve. Now this is important because this episode with Jesus going to the temple occurs when he's twelve years of age. And at the age of 12, they would uh, become apprenticed to whatever their vocation would be during their, their life. If they were going to follow their father's uh, profession, then they would stay at home. If they were going to go in a different direction and learn a new profession, then uh, frequently they would be sent away to live with someone else to train them for that profession. If they were going to be trained uh, to be a rabbi, then they would be sent to one of the uh, rabbinical schools where they would be trained to be a rabbi. This is what happened with the Apostle Paul. He lived at home with his parents in Tarsus until he was 12 years of age, at which time he would have been sent to live with his uh, with, his, with some extended family in Jerusalem, where he was trained in the rabbinical school under one of the most uh, famous rabbis of that period, uh, Gamaliel. And so this was typical. Now, when Jesus reaches the age of 12, he's going to, as the oldest child, he would have followed in the footsteps of his father, and he would have apprenticed to his human adopted father, Joseph, as a carpenter. But remember, Jesus has a distinct situation in that he has a, has a divine father, and so that comes to play in this particular episode that is described in between Luke 2.40 and Luke 2.52. Now, 
when this happens, this is an episode where Jesus goes, uh, where, where Jesus goes with his family, uh, down to observe Passover, Pesach, in, um, in Jerusalem. Afterwards, as they're going home, they would have traveled in a caravan where there would have been a huge number of people. A lot of extended family members would be there and the kids would be playing with each other, staying with each other. And so it'd be easy to, um, to not, uh, rec- not see that Jesus is right there. Perhaps they thought he was with them. They had seen him there and then Jesus disappears and they don't notice it right away. And he's back at the temple and he is found in discussion with the rabbis there and they're, uh, asking him various questions and he's engaged in, uh, quite a detailed, intricate conversation, uh, with, with the rabbis. And his knowledge of scripture would have probably been much greater and much more than that, uh, that a human, uh, teacher would have, uh, communicated to him. And because of his unique knowledge of the scripture, he is uh, just uh, amazing, the, the rabbis there, uh, with all of his knowledge. Well, how did he get that? Well, he's not accessing his deity to get that knowledge. He's not accessing his omniscience. We have a clue as to how this took place in a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 50. In Isaiah chapter 50, uh, verses 4 through 7, we have some insight on the training of, 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 of the servant. The servant in, in, in Isaiah is the Messiah. But in Isaiah 50, verse 4, we have a specific statement by the servant who says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He, that is God, the Lord God, awakens me morning by morning. Now, this isn't the Lord Jesus talking in his deity because in his deity he's omniscient. He doesn't learn. He knows everything simultaneously and always has. So this tells us an insight in that there was a special tutor for the Lord Jesus Christ in that he is taught and trained by his heavenly father uh, as he is growing up in his humanity. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. So this gives us some insight in that what was going on in terms of the, the, the personal way in which God the Father trained and taught the Lord Jesus in his humanity. So he is still having to learn and acquire knowledge in the same way that all of the other uh, children would have acquired knowledge, but he has a special tutor along the way. Now we're told in uh, Luke 2.41 that his parents went to Jerusalem every year. This indicates that they are an observant family. They observe all of the laws uh, three three times a year. uh, Jewish males were required to go to the temple. It doesn't say specifically that they took him each year, but I think that we can uh, infer that he did. And then in verse 42 it says, when he was 12 years old. Now it's important for Luke to, to inform us of that because this is when a young Jewish male, a Jewish boy, would make a decision in terms of whether or not he was going to follow in his father's footsteps and follow his father's profession or go into another profession. And so uh, he would have chosen Joseph's profession 
as a carpenter in, in terms of Joseph as his uh, adopted father, but as the, the son of God, it was now time for him to be about his heavenly father's business. That's the background here. So when he's 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when they had finished the, the day, so they would have been there a week. Pesach is one day, but it is also the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so that was a seven-day feast, so they would have observed Passover and then the seven days of unleavened bread. And at the end of a week then, everybody would have come back together in the caravan, and they would have headed back uh, north to Nazareth. And instead, Jesus, the child stays behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. Now, this doesn't mean that they're negligent, doesn't mean that they're, this isn't the same kind of time period we're in. They would have just assumed that he was there and had remained there with the rest of the family. They didn't know that Jesus had gone off on his own and was staying behind. And verse 44 tells us they supposed him to have been in the company, and they go a day's journey, and by the end of the day, they, they haven't seen him, and they begin to inquire and ask and among all the friends and relatives and everybody there, and they realize that he's not with them. And so they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Now, that's one travel day, so it's going to take them another day to get back. And so after three days, so they're back in The third day would have been during the first day back. Uh, you could read verse 46 and think that they looked for him for three days, but it's a day of travel one way, a day of travel back, and then on the third day, sometime a part of the third day, they would have found him in the temple because Jerusalem wasn't that large. It's not like going to Houston. It's not like going to Dallas. It's probably not even like going to Waco. It was not that large uh, of, a, of a town, of a city at that time, so it would not have taken long uh, to find him. On the third day, they found him sitting in the temple in the midst of the teachers, that is, in the midst of the rabbis, and listening to them and asking them questions. So there's a dialogue, and he's probing them and asking questions. And um, uh, verse 47 says, All who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And we might imagine that maybe even a crowd had gathered around him in order to listen to uh, the exchange between this this 12-year-old and the learned rabbis that were uh, engaged in this discussion. Everybody's just amazed at how he is answering. Now, that immediately pricks our curiosity because we'd really like to know what those questions and answers were, but God the Holy Spirit has left a veil over that, and we don't know. And so when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. So just a little bit like a Jewish mother, she puts a little guilt trip on him. Says, why have you done this to us? And um, we've, been, we've been looking all over for you. And his answer is, let me see if I have a slide on that. His answer is illuminative. Verse 50, uh, or 49 rather says, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? He's 12 years old. It's time to learn, get involved in the profession of his heavenly father, and so he's be getting engaged in that. That would be the Jewish background to understand that verse. But they don't understand the statement which he spoke to them. 
I imagine that there was a lot that went on in that home that the parents didn't understand. Even with all of the revelation that God had given them at the birth, they're having to process this with this unique child of the universe. There's no frame of reference for raising a perfect child who's the son of God who's going to give his life for the sins of the world. And I imagine there was a lot of uh, consternation on their part uh, over the years. But what we see that I want to hone in on here is Jesus' response after this. In verse 51, then he went down with them. Now that means that they're going home. Up and down in Israel in terms of directions always has to do with elevation. Nazareth is lower than Jerusalem, so they go, you go down from Jerusalem and you go up to Jerusalem. So when you're leaving Jerusalem, you always go down. And he goes down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. That, it's that word subject that's important. This is the Greek word hupatasso, which is found in numerous passages in Scripture, usually translated submit. That when we are to submit to an authority, this is the word that is that is uh, usually used, uh, either hupatasso or uh, hupakoe, which is uh, I, I, I believe I uh, I misspoke. Hupakoe is a word that is used here. Uh, hupatasso is the other word that is used frequently for submission, and it has to do with being submission to an authority. And this introduces the whole concept of authority to the uh, ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and why this is so important. First of all, we need to understand that the original sin of the universe was a violation of authority. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, we have the description of Satan's original sin and his articulation of the five I wills. He's disobedient to the authority of God. This is the core sin of the universe, is a rejection of God's authority. That sin is then mirrored or reflected in the sin of Eve and then Adam in the garden. They disobey God's authority. God placed them in the Garden of Eden. He had provided them with everything they needed for food and for nourishment. And in the midst of the garden, he had planted a tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told them they could eat from all of the trees in the garden, but they were not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that they ate of that, they would certainly die, referring to spiritual death, not physical death. Physical death would be the eventual result of spiritual death and their disobedience, but the immediate result was their spiritual death, that is, their separation from God. And so... Uh, the original sin of the universe is disobedience to authority, and everything else uh, flows out from that. So in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ as the second Adam, as Paul describes him in, in Romans chapter 5, 12, and following, it, 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 part of his role is to uh, demonstrate that man, the creature, can be obedient to God from his volition, and that as, as the second Adam, Jesus is going to uh, fulfill what Adam failed to do. And so he is going to demonstrate his complete submission to the Father in his humanity, not in his deity. He's not accessing his deity in order to do this. And even though in his deity he is also submitted to the Father, 
and we saw that in Philippians chapter uh, chapter 2, 5 to 11. But in his humanity, he is going to be submissive to all of the authorities that God set over him, even though those authorities that God set over him are sinful. Now, that has great application for us because so often we want to use uh, some misbehavior of someone in authority over us as a justification for our disobedience. But as my mother always said, two wrongs don't make a right and that we are always required to do the right thing, and that means that we are to be obedient uh, to the authority God set over us, and there's only one exception. And that is when that authority is directly telling us to do something that violates God's will, God's revealed will, not not what you think God wants you to do, but what God has specifically revealed in his scripture. So there may be things that a husband may ask of a wife or demand of a wife. There may be things that a government demands of a citizen. There may be things that an employer demands of an employee or an officer demands of someone uh, under his authority that you don't agree with, that you don't think is the right decision. But it's not morally wrong, and it's not a direct violation of Scripture. And so we are required by Scripture to be submissive to that authority. If the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated this in his life, in obedience to his parents, in obedience to uh, uh, all other government governing authorities, then we are to emulate that in the same way. This word, just to remind you of how this word is used in various uh, passages, First uh, Peter five five says Peter says, "Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders." We are to be in submission to those who are in authority over us in various structures. He's writing to a uh, messianic congregation at this time. That is a primarily Jewish congregation up in the area of Bithynia. And uh, he's reminding them that they are to be submissive to the authorities within that uh, local church. And he says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. This is humility is submission to proper authorities. Why? Because God resists the proud. God is hostile to those who are arrogant. Uh, whenever we are uh, disobedient to an authority, this is operation of our arrogance, and God is opposed to that, but he gives grace to the humble. That is, you may be in a difficult situation in a family, in a marriage, in a job, in school, uh, in the military, whatever the field may be, you may be in a difficult authority relationship. God is going to give you the grace to handle that if you are submissive to the proper authorities with you. James 4, 6 uh, reiterates that, that God gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We're told in Titus 3, 1, that we are to be subject to rulers and authorities. That is in terms of uh, government officials. Uh, in Titus 2.5, uh, women are told that they are to be obedient or submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. In Titus 2.9, uh, slaves were told, exhort bond servants to be obedient to their masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, uh, not answering back. So this is a principle demonstrated in the life of Christ, that he is subject to his parents 
as a perfect human being. He has to learn authority orientation, and he does that perfectly as an example to us. And if it was true for the Lord Jesus, how much more true is it of us? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study uh, this morning uh, in terms of our Lord Jesus Christ, in terms of the development of his humanity as an example to us of how we are to grow, how we are to understand our relationship to the authority set over us, that we might learn to uh, submit to authority as uh, an example to the angels and to those around us, and that this might be a testimony within the angelic conflict. Uh, Father, our prayer this morning is that if there's anyone here this morning that's never trusted in Christ as their Savior, that's never come to understand that they have a every human being has a need for salvation because all have sinned and fall short of your glory, there is a... Um, command a scripture directed to every human being, and that is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be saved. Scripture says that salvation is not something that automatically happens based on birth or based on background or any other human factor, but it is the result of our volition, our decision to trust in Christ as Savior. Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are instantly justified. They are instantly uh, regenerate, become new creatures in Christ, and given a new life which can never be taken from them. And those who are not are still under the state of condemnation in which we were born. Father, it is our prayer that if anyone here is not never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so, realizing that that salvation is totally a work of God and not a work based upon anything that we do, and is based on our response and acceptance of God's perfect gift of Jesus Christ as our Savior. And Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today as we come to deal with and apply your word in every uh, authority relationship that we have in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.